Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Chapters 2 continues. After he explained in chapter 1 that creation is ongoing, the idea of creation is that, that in each and every moment God is constantly creating the world. It's not a one-time act that God created the world 5,765 years ago, but each and every moment God is constantly recreating the world. So based on this, he says, we come to an understanding of the Jewish idea of divine providence, the meaning of divine providence, that everything down to the most exquisite detail is by divine providence, that not only God created the world, but God runs the world, God is in control of the world, God runs the world, and everything is by divine providence. Everything has meaning, everything has purpose, nothing just happens random. And based on the Jewish understanding of creation, as was elaborated in the first chapter, who refute the whole philosophical approach of the deist or those who deny divine providence. Those who deny divine providence are not, not necessarily atheists. It's called deism. They believe that God created the world, but they don't believe that God is involved in this world. This idea that God is constantly in the world. This is from Torah? I, I don't know if I missed it or what. what is, where is it exactly from Torah? Well, now he's going to explain it when, the, when you say will come to it in this chapter. When you say creation, he says by definition, if you understand creation, then you understand that this is an ongoing... And this is a core belief in Judaism, which is why we constantly remind ourselves of the Exodus from Egypt. The Exodus from Egypt reminds us that God, is not only cre- God did not only create the world, but God is in control of the world. He's engaged in the world. The deists believe God created the world, but then God went on to bigger and more important things. He's too eternal to worry about the petty things in life. You know, we're just a blip in comparison to eternity. So God would bother with, what's a blip? What's one person out of six billion? And that's just our generation. Take all other generations. Take our little world in comparison to the vast scope of all the galaxies and the stars. What's our tiny world? What's a blade of grass? What's an amoeba? So to say that God is engaged and involved in this blade of grass, and you and I, God cares what I eat. God cares how I think, how I speak, how I act. God is, on the contrary, you want to exalt God. God is so infinite. God is so eternal. God is beyond all of this. This was the philosophical position of the deists who believed in God. They believe that there's a God. On the contrary, to them, to exalt God is to say that God is so remote, God is so removed, God is so infinite. What's, what's, what's life? It's just a blip. God cares about live, die, suffer. This is, this is meaningless to God. God is involved in our lives, responds to our pains, cares about our concerns. It's, it's absurd. So they deny the whole idea of divine providence, which is the foundation of Judaism. Of the Jewish belief. God cares what we put in our mouth. 
God cares what comes out of our mouth, how we speak. God cares about our attitudes. God cares about our actions. He cares about every one of us, our pains, our cares, our concerns. If it concerns us, we have a mitzvah to pray to God and to speak to Him and to pour our hearts out to Him. I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble seeing that maybe, maybe it's semantics. But if Hashem created the, the world with the Ted on Earth, and once they're out there and they can be in all different kinds of combinations and whatever, it can form matter, whatever, everything. Then isn't that the same as saying that Hashem is in the world at all times? Or is that what you're saying? Or are you saying something different? Yes. That's, that it's being infused constantly with, with, with the energy from, from Hashem. So it's saying two things. Firstly, God is constantly speaking. The words, the words of Hashem, the words of God, the energy of Hashem is connected to the source of the words. God is constantly speaking and the words that He's speaking is constantly within and creating and sustaining and bringing into existence, is bringing the world to existence each and every moment. Each and every moment the world is recreated from, from scratch, all over again. From those ten from those ten hundreds, with the same ten hundreds. So God is constantly recreating the world each and every moment. The world exists and then the world ceases to exist unless God speaks again. So God has to constantly speak and constantly bring us into existence. And that's what he's going to explain in this chapter. It's not that God creates the world and now he set it into motion and now it's on its own. From the foregoing, the answer to the heretics may be to do. And there is exposed the root of the error of those who are deemed heretics, not because they deny that Hashem created the world, but because they deny individual divine providence and the signs and miracles recorded in the Torah. Why do they deny this when they readily admit that Hashem created the world? So they deny the whole idea of miracles, that God involves in the world, that God creates miracles, that God engages in the world and once in a while shows everyone that He's engaged by performing miracles. They totally deny that. And they explain all the miracles in the Torah in a very natural way. They, the splitting of the sea was high tide and low tide, and there's natural explanations for, for everything. They, don't, they deny the whole idea that God cares. God is so remote. It's ridiculous to say that God cares and God is involved in our sufferings, even death, the ultimate tragedy, even this, the tragedy that happened now. I received an email from a deist in response to my article. He said, he says, what's life in comparison to eternity? It's just a blip. Says, what, what, what? He says, you know, we're getting excited, but for eternity it means nothing. So don't, don't get excited and relax and, uh, and uh, you know, don't, don't think that there's any grand plan or grand... I mean, it's... it's, it's <laughs> it was, it was, it's amazing, you know, it was actually, it was amazing that, you know, God is so eternal and God is so remote and God is so, and we are finite comparison to infinite, we are just a blip, so what difference does it make, live, die, why, why take human suffering and human tragedy and talk to God about human tragedy and human suffering, what's the connection, God is so removed, so disconnected, it's so meaningless, in comparison to God. In his eyes, he's exalting God. God is so eternal. God is so infinite. What difference does human suffering make? What difference does all life? What difference does it make? You live 120 years. In comparison to infinity, it's just a blip in the universe. It's just a blip to eternity. It's nothing. Blink. Gone. Gone. Here. Gone. Look at them. So that, 
to him, that puts everything in perspective. Human tragedy, human suffering, pain. That's our finite perspective. But from God's point of view, it means nothing. So should God should be involved and care about our petty concerns and our petty tragedies. And God should actually take an interest and be engaged and involved. Once he created the world, he set the world in motion and God is, God is busy with eternity. He has no time for such. You can hardly even find our world. If you look in the galaxies, if you look at the vast scope of the universe, you can, even, you can hardly even find our globe. And within our globe to find us and my petty little concern. I should storm heaven about my, 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 my earache. I mean, what difference does my earache mean in the scheme of things in comparison to eternity? That's the deist position. They deny divine providence. They deny the whole idea of miracles and divine <coughs> providence. God's involvement in this world. And seems to be like a very philosophical, a very, very respectful position. On the contrary, God is so exalted that how can God be involved in this world? What's the response to that position? So he says, here, from the foregoing, everything that we learned in chapter 1, this is the response. This is the answer, how wrong they are. This, the, the, their whole assumption is wrong. The root of their error is exposed, because it's an error. The whole assumption is wrong. Why? It is because they err in their false analogy, and the outcome would be quite different to what they imagined, even if they were justified in their analogy. And comparing the work of Hashem, the creator of heaven and earth, to the work of man and his schemes. For when a silversmith has completed a vessel, that vessel is no longer dependent on the hands of the smith. And even when his hands are removed from it and he goes his way, the vessel remains in exactly the same image and form as when it left the hands of the smith. So when a person creates, when you give something to a, uh, a smith, when you give something to a, an artisan to make, when he creates something and then he walks away, Although a person invests, when you invest your energy into something, you do care about it. A person will care about if you made a little pottery, even though it means nothing to anyone else. It has a lot of sentimental value to you because it's your effort, your energy. You put something into it. You invested a piece of yourself. You invested time. You invested energy. It has value to you. You're not just going to walk away with, from it totally indifferent. And you do invest a little of yourself they say that Rabbi Dov Ber, the Magad Mazirch, the Alter Rebbe Zerebi, was able to tell by looking at a vessel, he was able to tell that the craftsman, that the artisan who made the vessel was, the artist was blind with one in one eye. He was able to see, from the vessel he was able to see because he invested a piece of himself, a little of his energy. And because he was so spiritual, he was able to see from the, from the vessel, just looking at the vessel, he was able already to tell that the, the one who made the vessel, the creator, creative artist, was blind in one eye. So, of course, a person does invest something in his vessel. But nevertheless, you can walk away from it. When the, when the creator makes and then he sells his vessel, he gives it away, he walks away. The vessel doesn't disappear, doesn't disintegrate. It's, it stands on its own. So they are comparing human creation to divine creation. The creation of heaven and earth. In the same way. In the same way do these fools conceive the creation of heaven and earth. They imagine that heaven and earth, once created, no longer need their creator. They therefore deny individual divine providence and the signs and miracles recorded in the Torah, inasmuch as these indicate that Hashem continues to be involved with creation and from time to time chooses to change the course of nature through miraculous means. 
So they, he calls them fools, because to them, creation of heaven and earth is the same as when you create something, when you create a vessel, a vehicle. But their eyes are covered so that they do not see the great differences between, difference between the work of man and his machinations, which consists of making one existent thing out of another already existent, merely changing the form and appearance from an ingot of silver to a vessel. Man's work merely consists of shaping an, a pre-existing mass. Moreover, even the new, appearances, new appearance already existed in potentia, for the nature of physical matter, such as silver, is such that it may be extended and bent and made to assume different shapes and forms. Thus, in reality, the craftsman did not change the matter at all. Hence, once he finishes shaping his artifact, he can leave it to its own devices, secure the knowledge that it does not need him anymore. The above-mentioned misguided thinkers fail to see the difference between the activities of the craftsman and the making of heaven and earth, which is created ex nihilo, from nothing. Before heaven and earth were created, they simply did not exist. Only after they were created did they come into being as existing entities. Their being is thus something utterly novel, something which previously had not existed at all. In such a situation, the Alter Rebbe will soon conclude the creative force which brings them into existence must constantly recreate, recreate them in order for them to exist. Were this forced to re withdraw, for even the briefest moment, creation would revert to nothingness. When a person creates, all you're doing really, you're just shaping something. You're not, the material exists before, and all you're doing is really just shaping. And even, even the shape is not a creation. You're not creating a new shape, you're revealing a shape. The piece of metal, the piece of uh, the pure chunk of silver, has, is full of potential. It could be formed in a million shapes, any, any way of shape. So you're just choosing one shape. So you're revealing a shape within this bland piece of metal. You're revealing a certain shape. Even after you shape it, you can melt it down and then change, change the shape. Because you're not creating anything. It has a potential. It could be shaped and formed like clay in any way, any way, shape, or form. So you've taken one shape and form and you've, and you've revealed it. You're not creating anything. The material existed before. Even the shape existed potentially. You're just revealing a potential, one of the potential shapes. So therefore, all you're doing is revealing. Since you're not creating anything, everything was there before, you can walk away and the, and the object will remain. Versus creation of heaven and earth, you're creating something from nothing. God didn't create the world with pre-existing material. God created the world from nothing. And therefore, if God would not constantly create the world, the world would revert to nothing. Because when you change nature, you have to constantly, there must be a force that's constantly changing nature. For example... If you have a ball on the surface, the surface, all you need to do is push the ball very lightly and the ball will go. You don't need a lot of strength because it's not going against nature. The ball is rolling along. Now, what if you take a ball and you try to throw the ball, try to throw the ball, 
Now you're going against nature, against the force of gravity. There's a heaviness. A ball is an object that has weight, that has mass. There's a heaviness to it. And heavy things fall down. And here you're taking a ball and you're throwing it contrary to its nature. There must be a force that's forcing the ball to go against its nature. And the ball will only fly as strong as your strength is. A person who's very strong can throw the ball far. But the ball will only fly as long as there's strength pushing the ball against the force of gravity. To go against the force of gravity, you need a tremendous strength. To get the, the rocket ship out of, out of the atmosphere, you need a powerful, powerful force to lift up and to go against the force of gravity. And what happens the moment that that force expires? It just reverts back to its nature. It just comes crashing down. What happens when you throw the ball and then the energy that was pushing the ball against the force of gravity ceases? Do you need a second strength to throw the ball back down? No. The ball automatically comes back down because the ball reverts to its nature. It's heavy, it has weight, it has mass, and, and it's pulled by the force of gravity. So whenever you go against nature, you need a tremendous force a tremendous strength to be able to overcome, overcome that nature. So when the artist shapes the vessel, he's not really going against nature. You have a piece of metal that's open and ready to be shaped and formed, and it's ready to take on any shape and form. So you invest your strength, you design the vessel, and then you leave. And the vessel doesn't revert back to a simple piece of metal, it remains in its shape and its form because you haven't really gone against its nature. You haven't really created anything. You just revealed one of the many possible shapes and forms. And you could always take that metal and always melt it down and change its shape and form. But creation is something from nothing. Meaning its nature is nothing. Our nature is that we don't exist. The most powerful force in nature is entropy. Everything should be reduced back to zero, to nothing. The act of existence, the act of life, the act of creation is nothing short but a miracle. There needs to be a constant force that's constantly creating us. Any doctor will tell you, any medical professional will tell you that the chances, of the, the chances for life and for health it's, it's a miracle because with all the, all the microbes, all the forces working to reduce us back to nothing, that naturally, that, that is the natural course of things. Naturally, we should all be ill and we should all be reduced to nothing, to death. Entropy is the most powerful force in the universe. The fact that we exist and the fact that we're healthy is a constant, creative miracle. The fact of the mir- existence is a miracle. The fact that we exist when our true nature is nothing. Everything should be constantly be reduced back, back to nothing. And the fact that we exist, there needs to be a force that's constantly creating us. And the moment this force stops, just like the ball, when you throw the ball and the strength behind the ball peters out, what happens? Automatically it just reverts back to its nature. It comes down. So what would happen if the divine energy, the creative energy that's creating us, and bring us into existence, 
and is give and is creating life and health. What would happen if that force, that energy, would stop? We would automatically revert back to our nature, which is nothing. We'd cease to exist. So it's not only that God has to like create the vessel every every moment, form the vessel every moment. It's like the artist with 24 hours a day, seven days a week, would constantly have to shape the vessel. It's much deeper than that. It's not just that God has to constantly shape the vessel. Because over there, he's just shaping the vessel. But here, God is creating the vessel. He's creating. He's creating our existence, something from nothing. And if you, that creative energy would cease to create us, we would, we would revert back to nothing. And this is the difference. Many, you know, many scientists believe... You know, if you go back to the origin of the universe, you, you come back to the Big Bang, and, of course, the scientist has no answer. What happened before the Big Bang? Who created the Big Bang? And does that mean that they believe in God? No. They believe that there were, like, endless universes. The universe existed for billions of years and then it all came to an end and then there was a Big Bang and it started again. And, once, and this... this universe that we're, we're in now will also come to an end and then there'll be a new, a, a rebirth. So, in essence, they believe that the universe existed forever. <laughs> Basically, the building blocks of the universe existed forever. It's just a constant process of death, rebirth, death, rebirth. But it's not something from nothing. That's why they deny miracles. They deny a belief in divine providence. In God's constant engagement, involvement in the world. God is running the world. That God is controlling the world. They believe in nature. But if you understand what creation means, when the Torah says God created, Bereshit Bara, the very first words in the Torah, and creation means something from nothing. It's not that God created the world with ingredients. He created the world out of nothing. Therefore, He must constantly recreate the world. Every moment. Because the moment that he stops creating the world, the world ceases to exist. But you can ask the question. Okay, go ahead. How is it inconsistent with that thought that the universe can be existing for forever? I mean, the world is not perhaps existing forever, but why is the universe not? Because something from nothing means that, every, that there is nothing. There is no heaven, there is no earth, there is nothing. The universe includes, when God created the heavens and the earth, and that includes the whole universe, material, spiritual... Something from nothing means everything was created from nothing. So inherently, naturally, nothing exists. There is nothing. And that is the nature of the world. So every moment that the world exists is, is a miracle, is a creative act. And if that creative energy s- stops creating, then it automatically reverts to nothingness. The world ceases to exist. The question you can ask is, in the analogy of the ball that's thrown... So why can't we say that God threw the ball, so to speak, threw, created the world, gave enough energy, just like when you throw the ball. If you throw it very, very strongly, the ball can go for a while. So why can't you say that God created the world with such strength that the world is, it carries the world against the nature, just like you can carry the ball against its nature, against the force of gravity, against its nature of heaviness, of resting in one place, a stone uh, object just rests in one place, and here the ball is moving, and the ball is going up against the force of gravity, despite its heaviness, because of the strength that you invested in the ball. So why can't we say that God invested His strength, His energy in the world, 
that he hurled the world into existence to go against its nature of being nothing, of nothingness, and that this energy is enough to last the world for the 6,000 years that the world will exist. If energy equals matter and matter equals energy, once you put energy into the world, into the universe, then it's there. So that's really my question. How do we know that there's a constant confusion? You know what the problem is? That human beings are not capable of comprehending nothing. Beyond anything, we cannot comprehend nothing. The minute you have the thought about it, that's no longer nothing. So there's no way that we know what nothing is. And man is not satisfied to throw in his face that there's something that he will never comprehend. So scientists don't buy that. They just keep going and going. Scientists keep on consistently going and going. It's not inconsistent with Judaism. I mean, if you're confident in the theories, then all the discovery in the world couldn't disprove anything that's in the Torah. Absolutely. But the, he's just arguing with the philosophical position of deism, that denying divine providence, denying that God is involved in creation. They believe that God set the world in motion, set the rules of nature, the laws of nature, and now the world is running on its own. Jews believe, however, that, that the world is a moral world. Everything that happens in the natural world is a reflection of what's happening morally. When the world is more moral and spiritual, we have our act together, we're centered and focused, godliness is revealed in the world, the world changes, the world is blessed. If, God forbid, we don't have our act together, we have inner confusion in the darkness, it creates confusion external, externally. So we see that the world is not like the ball. It's not like God threw the ball and now the world is on its own. We see that the material and the spiritual are so interlinked and so interconnected that it's, it's a parallel universe. Anything that happens in the physical world has an impact in the spiritual world. Anything that happens in the spiritual world has a direct impact on the physical world. So it's not like God is there and we are here. The world is here and God is in eternal bliss and God created this finite, limited world and running on nature and, the, and there's no connection. We see that there's an intimate connection between the physical and the spiritual. But the question is why? You're asking why, why, couldn't God, why couldn't God create the world like just throw the ball and with such strength that the ball goes for a while. So God can create the world. The world should be on its own for a while. Why does he have to constantly, like constantly throwing the ball? Why throw the ball? Why does he have to constantly create the vessel? Why does he have to be like an artist that's constantly creating the vessel? God can't be like the artist that creates the vessel and then the vessel is on its own. Because he has a divine plan. That goes beyond. But he's explaining it logically. He's explaining it. He's trying to understand it. That He says he can't, it makes no sense because the, the analogy to the ball is not a good analogy because... because Right, because the ball, you exist, the ball exists. So you're throwing the ball. But with God, there's no space empty of God. So it's not like, you, not like we're throwing, God can throw the ball somewhere else. There's no space empty of God. So in order for the world to exist, God has to continuously and constantly, the creative force, the creative energy has to continuously and constantly recreate the world each and every moment. And each and every moment, the world on its own reverts back to nothingness. The fact that we are created this moment, it's a brand new, it's a recreation. We don't feel it, we don't sense it. We feel continuity, we feel nature, we feel we take our existence for granted, we take 
the laws of nature for granted, the sun is going to rise tomorrow, we're, we're 100% sure the sun will rise tomorrow. But the truth is, it's a miracle. Every moment that the world exists is nothing short of astonishing. It's a miracle, it's mind-boggling. What's the evidence that the world will continue for another moment? Just because the world continued till now? There's no logical proof that the world will continue for another moment. It's just habit. We got used to it. It's only or because the Torah told us. God created the world and God promised that the world will, he will continue to create the world. But every moment of creation is nothing short of a miracle. Creation is a miracle. Existence is a miracle. The fact that we're alive and healthy is a miracle. It's an act of God. It's a miracle. It goes against all the laws of nature, all the forces of nature. The most powerful force of nature is the force of entropy. Everything should really constantly be reduced back to nothing. And the fact that life triumphs, health triumphs, existence triumphs, is nothing short of a miracle. It's a divine miracle. And you need a divine energy that to constantly create this miracle. This miracle doesn't just happen on its own. Why is it that we don't succumb to illness? It's a miracle. If you know the, the microbes that are lurking inside of us and the diseases, and the, it's nothing short of a miracle that the human body functions and that we're healthy for 120 years, hopefully. It's nothing short of a miracle. And this doesn't happen on its own. That's why he calls them fools. Only a fool will say that this just happens on its own. There must be an intentional divine will and energy that wills it, into, wills it to happen, that wants it to happen. So it's not that God is shaping and forming the vessel the whole time. God is creating the vessel from nothing. So God is constantly engaged and involved in creation because He's choosing and willing and deliberately choosing and deciding to recreate the world each and every moment. Nothing is forcing you, it doesn't have to. He wants so he's personally and intimately engaged with everything that happens in this world. There's no such thing as coincidence. There's no such thing as accident. If God could trouble himself, it's important enough for God to trouble himself to create this grain of sand. It's important enough for God to, to create this incident or this event or this occurrence or this meeting. or this. It's imbued with so much meaning. Nothing in the world could be meaningless or or haphazard, or just by chance. It's impossible. It's an absurdity. Everything is imbued with the, with the greatest meaning. Everything is divine providence. Everything you see or hear is divine providence. Divine providence is so far to the extent, the Baal Shem Tov once said, that sometimes it could be a whole storm. God creates a whole storm. And the trees are shaking. And the whole purpose of that was because there's one leaf on top of that tree that falls down, and covers up a worm that was in the sun, baking in the sun. It was uncomfortable. And the worm was crying to God, I'm uncomfortable. So God creates a whole storm. And he shakes the tree. So the tree, that a leaf on top of the tree should fall off. And to cover the worm. Nothing just happens. Just haphazardly. Everything is divine. As the Talmud says, God even decides which fish is going to be caught in the water. The, the, the bird that catches the fish is not... Well, it's nature, predatory bird, eats a fish. Everything, to the tiniest detail, is divine power. It must be. Because if God is creating at this moment, this bird and this fish, this second of existence, and God is bothering to invest himself, to create, personally create, and to speak, and to bring about creation, 
then it must be significant. It must have significance. It must matter. It must really be meaningful. So nothing, nothing is by accident. Everything a Jew encounters in life, everything a Jew hears or sees or meets or experiences, everything is profound. Everything has divine providence. Everything is an inherent connection. Beneath the surface, underneath the external logical explanation. Well, I just happened to meet this person. I just happened technically and mechanically. I just had to be here. That's, that's nonsense. That's looking at it so superficially. What's really going on, the inner dynamic is that there's a divine providence. There's an inner connection. There's a godly connection. You had to meet this person. You had to be here. You had to hear this. You had to see this. You had to experience this, encounter this. There's a connection. Two people meet. There's an inner connection. There's a connection between you and what you do with your life. Everything has an inner meaning. Because God is constantly creating the world each and every moment. Each and every moment, the world naturally reverts back to nothingness. And it's nothing short of a miracle that life exists, that there is existence, that there's life, there's health. And there's the, 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 the creative energy. There has to be an energy, a force, that's creating it, that's forcing existence from its natural nature, from its, its essential nature, which is nothingness. To create something out of nothing, this, this is an ongoing, ongoing occurrence. And therefore, this very moment, the world essentially reverts to nothingness, and the only reason it exists is because God is recreating the world. Just like the first time. Everything is constantly being recreated. Everything appears to us to be stable, and dead, and natural. But the truth is, every moment is an act of creation. You have a front row seat to the greatest miracle that ever happened, the miracle of creation. Imagine you had a front row seat during creation. But you have a front row seat because creation is, going, is happening this second as we speak, this split second. We don't see it because we're wearing blinders. Talk of nature and science which is only descriptions. Not a, it doesn't explain anything. The Torah helps us remove the blindness. And the very first words in the Torah, and this is the foundation of the Torah, is Bereish is bara. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Creation is ongoing, is dynamic, is vibrant. Not only God created the world, God is engaged in the world, God is involved in the world. God is with us every moment, every step of the way. Totally with us, within us, all around us. We are constantly connected. Everything is connected. Everything is divine providence. An inner connection, inherent connection. Not a superficial, mechanical, external, logical connection. A soul connection. Personal connection. An intimate connection. And that's why to the Jew the world is a, is a very friendly place. The world is a godly place. And the Jew is able to discover godliness in everything. Our whole mission in life is to discover the godly sparks everywhere, all around us, in all our human experiences, to elevate all the godly sparks. Because godliness is all around us, within us, all around us. There's nothing else. This creation ex nihilo. Oh, is even more wondrous than, for example, the splitting of the Red Sea. For then, God drove back the sea by a strong east wind all the night, i.e. the godly force that split the sea clothed itself in the wind, and the waters were split and not merely ceased their flow, but stood upright as a wall. If God had stopped the wind, the waters would have instantly flowed downward, as is their way in nature, 
and undoubtedly they would not have stood upright like a wall, even though the need for water to flow downward is also newly created ex nihilo. As the Rebbe Shlita points out, the altar Rebbe means to say that not only is water itself a creation ex nihilo, but the nature of water to flow downward is also created ex nihilo. When the mighty wind caused the water to stand like a wall, nothing was newly created ex nihilo, yesh ma'ayin. This was no more than a case of yesh ma'yesh. One existent state, the fluidity of water, was merely replaced by another existent state, its ability to remain upright. Nevertheless, since the ability of water to stand rock-like is something novel, the force that is responsible for this novelty, even though this novelty involves no more than a progression from one yesh to another, must constantly cause it to come about. The moment it ceases to do so, the novel event is arrested. We thus see that the fluidity of water is not intrinsic to its essence. By way of contrast, the fact that a created being occupies space, for example, is an essential characteristic that does not require separate creation ex nihilo. In order for water to be fluid, a distinct act of creation ex nihilo is required. The Alter Rebbe makes this point by citing the contrasting case of a stone wall which stands upright independently of any external force. For a stone wall stands erect by itself without the assistance of the wind, but the nature of water is not so. Since water by nature does not stand upright, but flows downward, an additional degree of creation ex nihilo is called for, if it is to do otherwise. The above demonstrates that the divine force that clothed itself in the wind did not have to create yesh ma'ayin, a newly existent being, within creation. It merely had to change one yesh to another yesh, one form of existence to another. The natural property of water, fluidity to the natural property of standing erect. Nevertheless, even in such a situation, since a radical degree of change is involved, it is necessary for the power causing the change to affect the change unremittingly. Surely then the Alter Rebbe soon concludes with regard to the creation of the world, which comes into being absolutely ex nihilo. The activating force of the creator must constantly be present in the created universe, providing it with life and existence. Indeed, were it not to be constantly present, the universe would revert to absolute nothingness. Thus, even those who mistakenly compare God's creation to the works of man should also realize that an act that affects a radical change in a pre-existing entity, e.g., for example, causing water to assume the properties of a wall, requires that the activating force renew its effect continuously. This in itself should suffice to demonstrate that the activating force of the Creator must continuously revivify creation. We thus see that not only is the analogy of the heretics false, for one cannot meaningfully compare God's creation and the works of man. But even according to their view, a situation which requires radical change in a created being necessitates the constant input of the animating force. So he's bringing an analogy from the splitting of the sea. Not that the heretics believe in the splitting of the sea. They don't. <laughs> they believe that it was high tide and low tide. Um, but he is just using an, an, an analogy. When you blow on water, water by nature flows. When you blow, imagine you have a little water and you blow. You'll create a space, right? You can split. So as long as you're blowing on the water, you'll create a space. The moment you stop blowing, what happens? The water reverts back to its nature. The splitting of the sea, when God split the sea, the Torah says that God did not miraculously change water, that water suddenly received the properties of a stone. It says that the wind blew all night. So it was caused by the wind. There was a force wind, a strong wind from the east. 
and the wind kept on blowing all night. You know, God could have created the water, suddenly the water should become stone. God could have changed the water into stone. God could have made the water disappear. He didn't. The water remained, and water remained, retained its properties of water, which is to flow downward. But God brought a powerful wind that blew all night and separated the two waters. It's the wind that created the space between the water and kept the water like a wall. Of course, it was a miracle because for a wind to change the water, suddenly the water stands like a wall. It was a miracle, but the miracle came about through, through the wind. It wasn't like it was a sunny day, no wind, and then suddenly the water is standing like a marble pillar. The miracle came about through the wind. And when the waters, how did the waters revert? When the wind stopped blowing automatically. It's not that God created another miracle. Just like he had to split the sea, he had to make a miracle and cause the sea to go back and to fill the space. No. It says the wind stopped blowing. When the Egyptians entered into the sea, the wind stopped blowing and automatically the walls came crashing down on them because the waters reverted back to its nature. So in this case, did God change the nature of water? The nature of water is to flow. Now, just like God created a nature of flowing, there's also a nature to stand. We see that stones stand. So all God did was that He caused the water, the miracle of splitting the sea was that He caused the water to stand like stone. The wind caused the water to stand like stone. In order to get the water to stand like stone, which is not an essential change, water remains water, He's just changing the property of the water. Instead of water having the nature to flow, instead water has the property and the nature to stand like a wall, like stone. So in order to achieve this change, he didn't change the water. He just changed its property. Instead of it flowing, the water should stand. In order to achieve this change, there had to be a force, a creative force, that constantly and continuously Push the water, the wind that came from the east, that constantly and continuously created this new reality, created this new nature in the water. Even though it wasn't, it wasn't a real creation because water existed before, the quality of standing existed before. All that God did was He substituted the quality of flowing with the quality of standing. And yet, even to make that change, God didn't just say, water, stand. That wasn't enough. God sent the wind, and the wind that to constantly push the water to get it to stand. So he had to do something else more than that because you have people walking in this like, wind. Also, I, I walk in New York City and I get blown down by the wind, and that's not like you know. We're strong enough to split a sea, so there had to be something there that changed also. Right? Not just... Well, the, that was part of the miracle that for the Jews it was pleasant and the walk was very pleasant and the walk was, it was a dry walk and it was totally dry and pleasant and the Midrash elaborates and there were trees growing and there were fruits and there were birds and, and they walked, the sea was split into 12 different parts. That was part of the miracle that it didn't affect the Jews. The, for the Jews that whole experience was a pleasant experience. But the way God split the sea, the Torah states clearly, he says it was a wind that was blowing all night. That's what the Torah says. 
Of course, it was a miracle. Which wind do we know? Has there ever been a wind in world history that caused the sea to split? But the miracle came about with, with the power of the wind. So it's not that God said, wall, stand, and then the wall stood for the rest of the night, and then God had to say, okay, wall, fall down, become water again, act like water. The miracle happened constantly. It had to be a constant force, a constant creative divine energy that forced the water to go against its nature. The nature of water is to flow. And God had to constantly force the water to go against its own nature and to stand and to act like a stone, like a wall. Stand still, not even flowing. He says like a wall. It didn't just stand like you gather water in a, in a vessel, but the water is still moving. The water stood like a wall. It almost congealed. But it was the wind that was constantly, the creative energy was constantly creating this reality. The moment the wind stopped, automatically the water reverted back to its nature. So you see that even when God just wants to change the nature, not change the reality, but just change one nature to another nature, because the nature of water flowing is not essential to water. It's almost like an added-on thing, that water flows. Stones stand and water flows. God maybe could have created that water should stand and, and, and stones should flow. So God took this nature that already exists, the nature to stand, and He caused the water to act like stone and to stand. But even just to change, to make that change, you need a constant energy to create that change. How much more so when you're creating something from nothing, when you're changing something from nothing, the change from nothing to something is so much more dramatic. How much more so that you need a constant force, a constant energy that's constantly creating and empowering and creating this change. The Midrash says there were trees with fruit. Is that in the Torah as well? The Midrash is part of the Torah. That's the oral tradition. That was transmitted from parent to child. That there were trees. Yeah, miraculously. That's not in the written Torah, though. No. The whole thing was miraculous. What happened to the fish? The fish were swimming in the water. Water was water. The water, God didn't make the water disappear. But there was an empty space, and on the side, the water was like a wall. It stood like a wall, but water was water. Fish were there. It was like a fish tank. The most gorgeous fish tank. Snorkel, you know, you go snorkeling, you see all the, they went to the, the bottom of the sea, and the, the Red Sea is beautiful. You see all these, all these fish, coral. They're asking each other what's going on. Yeah, it was a beautiful experience. It was a miraculous experience. But the miracle had to be ongoing. Because the energy had to constantly create this miracle. Otherwise, the water would revert back to nothing. But this is something that already exists. Water already existed. God didn't change. What was the change? The change was water should flow, water should stand. That's a minor change in comparison to the change of non-existence to existence. All the change that we know of, all the change, you know, the way we classify life and we... Everything, the difference between poor and rich, dull and brilliant and colorful or tall, short, all the differences, quality in life, low quality, high quality, take any extreme, take all the extremes in existence, one extreme to the other. The difference between one extreme to the other is not as dramatic as the difference between non-existence and existence. 
The difference between non-existence and existence is so much more dramatic. But this is something that eludes the deists, eludes those who deny divine providence. Because we live in a framework of existence. Our whole frame of reference is existence. We take existence for granted. The question is, what quality of existence do we have? We have a great quality of existence, a low quality of existence, and that's the whole struggle in life. We're trying to change from one extreme to another extreme, from poor to wealth to rich. But none of it compares to the dramatic difference between non-existence and existence. The Jew has the ability to step back, to step outside of the whole frame of reference. And the Jew questions the whole assumption, the whole underlying assumption of existence itself. The Jew says, why are we taking existence for granted? Why do we exist? Why is there existence? When naturally, essentially, with the law of entropy, we should all be nothing. How is it that life triumphs over illness? Health triumphs over illness? How is it that life triumphs, existence triumphs? It is nothing short of the most prof- profoundest miracle. And there must be some dramatic force or energy divine force or energy that's forcing this, that's creating this each and every moment. So the Jew has the ability to step back and to question the very assumption, which is why the Jew traditionally is always a revolutionary, because the Jew questions all the assumptions. The Jew steps outside of the whole picture and questions the whole, the whole assumption. And that's what Shabbos is. A Jew doesn't keep Shabbos. Shabbos is the most essential part of a Jew's life. Shabbos to a Jew is like idolatry. Not to keep Shabbos to a Jew is the equivalent of worshipping idols. Because what is Shabbos? Shabbos is when a Jew steps back and celebrates the miracle of existence. Six days a week, we're living within the framework of reality, the framework of existence. We're working, we're accomplishing, we're creating, we're moving, we're changing. Come Shabbos, we step back and we say, wait a minute, why are we taking existence for that? Existence itself is the greatest miracle. You want to celebrate Celebrate existence. The fact, that I am, the fact that we're here, that God created the world. Shabbos affirms that God created heaven and earth, that existence itself is an act of creation, is a miracle. And that's the most dramatic, the fact that I exist. Forget about the quality of existence or the type of existence. The fact that I exist, period, is the most dramatic thing. If you think about it, if you step back, if God forbid you had a choice between non-existence and existence, you would appreciate, you would give up everything just to exist. Because that's the most dramatic thing, that's the most meaningful thing. Everything else is just icing on the cake. But you don't appreciate it. And Dr. Rebbe refers to them as fools. Because they're stuck within that framework of science and logic and rational and deism. And they, they don't have the ability to step back and to say, wait a minute. Creation itself, existence itself is the greatest miracle. Creation, existence tells me that there's a God. And that God is constantly engaged and involved in the world. Because there must be a powerful energy, a creative divine energy that's constantly making that transition from non-existence to existence. That's bringing us from non-existence into existence. That change is so profound, is so dramatic. That is the biggest proof that there's a God in this world. And that God is intimately engaged and involved with existence and with life and with every detail, the tiniest detail that happens in this world. Godliness permeates creation. Godliness is within us and all around us. Our substance is godliness. Our essence is godliness. There is nothing else. It's a miracle.
Existence is a miracle. I take a breath, it's a miracle. Life is a miracle. Health is a miracle. I eat, I drink, I sleep. Everything I do is, is nothing short of a miracle. But with, when you're in the framework of existence, you don't see it. You're blind. You have blinders. You don't see it. You don't have the capacity to see it. Because that's your whole frame of reference. You're like living in a bubble and you have no idea. You, can't, you don't have that perspective. You can't step back and appreciate and put everything into perspective. The Torah puts everything into perspective. That's the opening words. That's the foundation, the cornerstone of everything that follows. Creation. It's an astonishing miracle. It makes no sense. And there must be a, and there is a dramatic force and energy that's constantly creating this miracle. The Zohar says it was a rabbi, the Yeva Sava, one of the colleagues of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai, when his wife would serve him breakfast or dinner, and the food was already sitting on the table, he would say a prayer. He would pray to God. He says, "Please, Hashem, please give me food," which is very puzzling. Your prayer was already answered. The food is on the table. It's piping hot. It's steaming hot. Why are you praying to God, give me food? He had already given you food. And the answer is, for a Jew, every moment of existence is nothing short of a miracle. Just because I exist now, there's nothing logical that tells me, that compels me to believe that I will continue to exist another moment from now. There's nothing logical that compels you to say that the sun will rise tomorrow. Just because the sun has risen for the last 5,765 years doesn't mean it will continue to rise tomorrow. It's not logical. Everything that we take for, nat- for granted, that's natural to us, we take for granted, is really nothing short of a miracle. We take it for granted because it happens so, so often. So we just take it for granted. We get used to it. But in reality, in truth, logically, it's a, it's a miracle. Who says the sun will shine tomorrow? And the fact that the sun is shining is anything short of a miracle? If it never happened, if it happened for the first time, we would all be, wow. But because it happens so often, oh, of course, the sun shines. It's, it's a miracle. There's no difference between nature and miracle. The only difference is nature happens so often that we just take it for granted. But logically and truthfully, it's a miracle. In other words, to the believer, to the believer, it's not if the sun would stop shining that that would be astonishing. To us, if the sun stopped shining, that would be astonishing. If suddenly, tomorrow morning we woke up and the sun wouldn't shine, that would be astonishing to us. To the believer, the fact that the sun is shining, that is astonishing. That is nothing less than astonishing. It's a miracle. And the, it's interesting, the Talmud refers to the, we know the Mishnayot, the oral Torah is divided into six sets, six categories, which we're learning in our Talmud class. And the first set of, uh, the first category is Zerayim, the laws of agriculture, which Brachat is part of the first tractate. There are six orders of the mission. There is um, agriculture, there is the laws that deal with the holidays, time, Shabbat, and then you have civil law, and then you have laws that deal with marriage and relationships. Then you have the laws that deal with the sacrifices. It's called kachim, holiness. And then you have laws that deal with purity, which was especially relevant in the times of the temple and mikvah, etc. The Talmud quotes a verse, and the Talmud relates the tractate 
of agriculture to the idea of emunas, faith, which is very puzzling. If you want to connect an order to faith, you should connect the order of sacrifices, the whole idea of bringing a sacrifice to God, connecting with God by bringing an animal as a sacrifice, and holy, making an animal holy and bringing it as a sacrifice. That's an act of faith. When you talk about purity, purity is not physical cleanliness, it's the whole thing is a spiritual phenomenon. That's an act of faith. You talk about celebrating a holiday or Yom Tif, that Shabbos is holy. Scientifically, what's the difference between Shabbos and Hal Pesach? It's all, that's an act of faith, that this day is holy. This day is imbued with holiness, and Sunday is not holy, and Monday is not holy, Shabbos is holy, or Pesach is holy. Agriculture, what does that have to do with faith? It's the most natural thing in the world. So the Rebbe explains, because for a Jew to take a seed, a perfectly whole seed, and to bury it in the ground, and to allow the seed to rot, is an act of faith. It's not enough that nature tells me that this is, this is a natural way of things. You plant the seed and trees grow. It's an act of faith. Because for a Jew... Nature is a miracle. It's nothing short of a miracle. Existence itself is a miracle. It's only because the Torah tells me that you should plant your vineyard, plant your seeds. That is why we go ahead and we plant the seed. The Torah gives more credibility to science than scientists give to themselves. The Torah tells us we have to listen to the doctor. Doctors themselves don't even trust themselves. Because they know how often, they're, how, how often they're wrong. Pills are good, pills are no good. Constantly changing, constantly re-editing. Bloodletting was considered very healthy. And then... Still do it. <laughs> like, they, like they used to do it. Okay. But not to the extent they used to. They used to kill, they used to kill people. <laughs> but the Torah says... That when the doctor tells you, you have, to, you have to listen to the doctor. The Torah gives more credibility to the doctor than the, than the scientist gives themselves. The scientist doesn't have real confidence in himself. He says, it's all probabilities. We don't know of anything for certain. The Torah says, when it comes to Shabbat, you, must, you have to listen to the doctor. Even violate Shabbat, based on, the, on what the doctor says. So for a Jew, the only reason we plant a seed and we follow the laws of nature is because the Torah tells us to follow the laws of nature. Because nature is a miracle. It's an act of creation. Each and every moment, God is recreating the world. And that's why Rabbi Yeva Saba, when the food was sitting in front of him, he didn't eat. It wasn't enough that the food is sitting in front of him. It's not till he prayed to Hashem. He wasn't sure the food is going to be there for another second. Matter of fact, the, f- the food is there for another moment. There was nothing less, it was nothing short of astonishing. It was a miracle. That existence continued for another second is nothing short of the most the greatest miracle, the most astonishing miracle. And therefore he acknowledged it by praying to Hashem and asking Hashem for the food. And he felt, who gave him the food? Hashem answered his prayer and Hashem gave him the food. Now this is on a very high level. But this is where the Jew comes from. To a Jew, there is no difference in nature and miracles. To a Jew, nature is a miracle. The Rebbe just explained the miracle of nature, the miracle of existence is much greater 
than all the miracles in the Torah. The greatest miracle in the Torah is the splitting of the sea. Alter Rebbe says the splitting of the sea, that's nothing in comparison to the miracle of this cup of water, the miracle of nature, the miracle that we exist. The difference between nothing and something is so much more dramatic, is so much greater than the difference between the water splits or the water doesn't split, or the water turns into blood or doesn't turn into blood. All the miracles in the Torah are nothing in comparison to the miracle of creation. The miracle of creation is the most astonishing miracle of all. The miracle of existence is the most astonishing miracle. And therefore, of course, Hashem is engaged, involved. You need a tremendous energy, a tremendous force, creative energy, each and every moment to bring existence into being, to make that transition from nothing to something, each and every moment, is nothing short of an act of God. So being itself, existence itself, is an act of God. Our being is an act of God. All of our experiences are an act of God. Everything that happens in our lives, to the tiniest detail, is nothing short of an act of God. So how can a Jew not believe in divine providence? Of course, God is engaged in the world, involved in the world, intimately engaged in love. The world wouldn't exist without God deliberately and willingly choosing to recreate the world and everything that happens in the world from the tiniest grain of sand and the tiniest amoeba to the most earth-shaking event, the heavens and earth. How much more so is it in the creation of something out of nothing, which transcends nature and is far more miraculous than the splitting of the Red Sea, that surely with the withdrawal of the power of the Creator from the thing created, God forbid the created being would revert to not and utter non-existence. Rather, the activating force of the Creator must continuously be present in the thing created to give it life and ongoing existence. Activating forces such as the above are the self-same letters of speech that constitute the ten other utterances by which all beings were created. This is why the above quoted verses states, Forever, O God, your word stands in the heavens. God's speech, which is the force that brings a created being into existence, must be present there forever, so as to give it life and existence. It comes back to what he started earlier, that the divine words, the divine energy, is constantly, Hashem is constantly speaking, Hashem is constantly creating, and bringing everything into existence, and Hashem not only creates the world, but He runs the world, He's intimately involved and engaged in the world, Everything that happens in the world is by personal divine providence. That's why Jews believe in miracles. It's not just, it's not only that God created the world and once in a while he intervenes to show that he can change the world if he wills, if he likes to. That is not the Jewish understanding of miracles and wonders. It's the Christian understanding of miracles. God creates the world and once in a while he, inter- he intervenes to show that he's, he's still around or he's the big boss. But other than that, he basically created nature, the rules and laws of nature, and the world just runs on its own. <clears throat> that is not the Jewish belief. The Jewish belief is that God is continuously involved in creation, Creation, existence itself is much more impressive 
is a greater miracle than all the miracles. God doesn't have to show a miracle to show us that he's involved in the world. The fact that we exist is the greatest miracle of all. And if when it comes to a miracle, we all see God must be involved and continuously involved, as in the splitting of the sea when the wind had to blow all night to create this miracle, to force the water to go against its nature. How much more so, the greatest miracle of all existence itself, that God is constantly creating us and bringing us into existence. So this is a revolutionary approach. This is, a, this is entirely different than any other. This is the foundation of the Jewish people, the very first words of the Torah, of our Shabbos. Right in the beginning, God creates the world with ten utterances, and the seventh day he rests. Because it's the Shabbos that affirms our belief in creation. Shabbos, everything becomes a mitzvah. On Shabbos, when you eat, it's a mitzvah. When you sleep, it's a mitzvah. Just existing and being become a mitzvah. On Shabbos, you stop creating, adding to the universe. You're not allowed to create. You're not allowed to add to the universe, the quality of the universe. Cook something, turn on the light, change something. Change the status quo. Shabbos, you realize you don't have to add anything. The fact that I exist, that is the greatest miracle. That is a celebration. Shabbos, you stop taking existence for granted. That's the miracle of Shabbos. That's why Shabbos is the holiest day. A holy day. When you stop taking existence for granted and you realize that existence itself is the greatest miracle. It's the holiest thing. And if Hashem... Becomes part. The act of eating becomes a mitzvah on Shabbos. The most simple, natural act, sleeping, taking a walk, pleasurable activity, all becomes a mitzvah. Because that is the greatest pleasure. If a person had a choice between living a poor life or a rich life, or a choice between non-existence and existence, <laughs> you would suddenly discover the pleasure of existence. That's the deepest pleasure. Everything else is icing on the cake. Poor, rich, Deep, shallow, all of that is, these are relative differences. But the difference between non-existence and existence is, is as dramatic as it gets. And you relish and you find deepest pleasure just in being and existing. The deepest pleasure a person has is the will to live, to exist. God forbid a person's life is threatened. Nothing else means anything. Suddenly you discover the deepest pleasure. Shabbos is a day of pleasure. You realize the, the pleasure, the miracle of existence itself. And that's why the Jews are called witnesses. We are the witnesses. We give testimony on Shabbos. We all stand up and show Friday night. And like witnesses in the Jewish court, you have to stand up, rise, and give testimony. Every Jew is called to rise and give testimony by Yechulu, Mayim, that God is the creator of heaven and earth. By keeping Shabbos, we give testimony to creation, that God is the creator, the miracle of creation. That's the most dramatic miracle. That's why we have Shabbos every week. A holiday is for a special miracle, a special occasion. Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot. Shabbos is much more profound than the holidays. Shabbos is the miracle of existence. That's the greatest miracle of all. That's the most divine of all. You want to be intimate with Hashem? You want to get close with Hashem? You want to realize Hashem is with you every step of the way? As close as you can get? That Shabbos. Shabbos becomes the foundation for the whole week. 
Then you go back into the work week, into the creative mode, and, and you add spice to existence, and you change, and you transform, you come... But you still have that sense, Hashem is with you. Shabbos instills within you, infuses within you that sense that existence is a miracle. Everything is a miracle. Nature is a miracle. And therefore, you live a certain way. You act, you do business. If all my competition are thieves and gandavim and steal and lie and cheat, what does it have to do with me? I know where my bread comes from. It comes directly from Hashem. Nature is just a medium. It's just a vehicle. Nature is nothing independent. It comes directly from Hashem. And what's the vessel to receive Hashem's blessing? The Torah. Studying Torah. Finding time to study Torah. Doing business in a kosher way. Being honest. Truthful. Treating your employers, employees properly. Treating your employer properly. Stopping to work on Shabbos. Not working on Shabbos. That's the vessel for your blessing. Because Shabbos reminds you that there's nothing but Hashem. Everything is really Hashem. Hashem is with me, in me, all around me. There is nothing else. The very substance of existence of nature is nothing more than Hashem. The divine energy, the, the letters, the words in the Torah that are constantly creating, that are forcing and creating this world and bringing it into existence each and every moment, each and every split second. It changes your whole attitude. It changes your whole perspective. That's why the Talmud says, if a Jew keeps Shabbos, if the Jewish people kept Shabbos, one version is one Shabbos, the other version is two Shabbos. If the entire Jewish people kept one Shabbos or two Shabbos, his Mashiach will be here in a second. It's not just a segula. Segula is like, like a trick. You know, if you do this, then it'll work. Because if you keep Shabbos, Shabbos changes you. It transforms you. It transforms your whole attitude, your whole perspective. You can never be the same. If someone truly keeps Shabbos from A to Z, from Aleph to Tav, it will dramatically transform. And it would, when the Jews transform, the whole world will be transformed. And the whole world will become Shabbos. When Mashiach will come, it says every day will be Shabbos, in the sense that godliness will be transparent. Now we're, wearing, we're all wearing blinders. We don't sense it, we don't feel it, we don't experience it. When Mashiach will come, all the blinders will be removed and godliness will be self-evident. You'll feel, you'll see the divine energy creating this cup of water. You'll see the divine energy, that creative energy. Tonight is the yard site of the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. And the Alter Rebbe, we'll just conclude, and the Alter Rebbe, when he passed away, I think it's, it's a tremendous host that we're learning Tanya on the, day of the, on the yard site of the Alter Rebbe. And uh, the Alter Rebbe, right before he passed away, it was a Saturday night, and um, I think it was Saturday night, Parshish. Shemais, if I'm correct. The same time, this time. And his son was not with him, but his grandson was with him, Rabbi Menachem Mendel, who was later the third Lubavitcher Rebbe. And right before he passed away, he turned to his grandson and he says, pointed to the beam. He says, what do you see? He says, I see a beam. The Alter Rebbe says, I don't see a beam. So I see the divine energy. Now, what did Alter Rebbe mean? He didn't mean that he sees it in the eye and his mind. That he saw all his life. But right before he passed away, he physically, with his naked eye, what did he see? He didn't see the physical. He saw the divine energy. Imagine seeing the infinite, the, the, the process of creation. 
Imagine if every one of us, if our veil was lifted and we were able to see, our naked eye were able to see godliness, able to see the divine energy. Right now we don't see, we are blind. We see in the spectrum, we see the tiniest, the lowest part of the spectrum. We see nothing. But Adam and Ganeden, Adam was able to see from one end of the world to the other. So Mashiach will come, especially after the resurrection, it says, and especially in the year 6000, it says God will destroy the world. What does it mean to destroy the world? It means the world, as we know it, will be totally unrecognizable. Because with the naked eye, we'll physically see godliness. Could you imagine if we physically saw godliness? You walk down Park Avenue and you saw a tree. Yeah, I don't know if you can see any trees in Park Avenue, but if you saw, and you saw godliness, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't be able to sin. You wouldn't even be tempted to sin. If you saw godliness, you would, that would be your whole life. The world would be, would be dramatically transformed. Well, that's the world. That's the world that we are preparing for. That's the world that we are helping helping bring along through our Torah mitzvah, through all our Torah and mitzvot and unconditional love for your fellow Jew and all the good deeds, we are preparing the world for the Messianic era. When Mashiach will come, we'll sense, in the physical world, we'll sense its energy. If the Magid was able to see, look into a vessel, and able to see that the creator of the vessel was blind with one eye, because the artist invests his energy in that vessel. So how much more so that Hashem doesn't just invest his energy in us, but Hashem is constantly, unlike the human artist who can walk away from his vessel, but Hashem constantly creates us, recreates us each and every moment, how much more so that that divine energy is within us. And really when you look at existence, you should really see that divine energy. You look at a tree, you should really see its root, its source. You should really see its divine energy, which is Hashem. When you look at a person, you should really see the divine energy, which is Hashem, the miracle of a person. And you look at anything that exists, even a stone. The fact that a stone exists, it has a divine energy, a creative energy, a dynamic energy that's constantly bringing and sustaining the stone into existence. So if we cannot experience it experientially, as the Alter Rebbe did, we don't see it with our naked eye, but at least... We could experience it with the eye of our mind. If we dwell on this, and meditate on this, and reflect on this, and focus on this, until we internalize it, until we integrate it, then, as the verse said, he started out with the verse, you should know, you should know very well, every day, every day you have to constantly meditate it and reflect on it again, and you should take it to your heart. It's not enough to know it intellectually. You really have to think about it until... It settles in your heart until it moves you, it inspires you, it changes you, elevates you. That God is God. There's nothing but God. Not that, not that there's no other God but God, there's no other God hiding under the ocean. But there's no other reality but God. Because what are we? We are just Hashem's energy. That's all we are. We are Hashem's energy. This cup of water is Hashem's energy. That Hashem is constantly investing in us every moment. That's who we are. There's nothing else. There's no other substance. What are we? Nothing. We exist. It's a miracle. We are the handiworks of Hashem. The Maral had his golem. <laughs> we are Hashem's creatures. Hashem's divine energy. That's who we are. And if you think about it and reflect on that, and you realize that you are godly, then the only thing that you want in your life are godly things.
as spelled out in the Torah. I know whenever I do a mitzvah, I'm doing something godly. I'm behaving in a way that's consistent with my, with my substance, which is godliness. That's my real nature. Whenever I do something that's wrong, that's against the Torah, or I say something that's wrong, or I think something that's wrong, I am going against my nature, my core nature, my divine nature. And you seek out in the world around you, what do you seek out, what do you look for? The godliness. You drink a cup of water, you make a blessing, you eat, you eat kosher. Everything that you do, you look and seek out and search the godly spark. Because that's all there is, there's nothing else. You do business? Yes. But what's the point? You seek out the godliness, the purpose. You do business in a kosher way, you take the money, you do good things with it, kosher things, wholesome things, you give tzedakah. Everything that you encounter, everything you see and hear becomes a lesson. You learn something from it. Everything is divine providence. You see the divine providence within, all around you. You open your eyes to see the divine providence all around you. The business person could see godliness more than the rabbi could. Because the rabbi is immersed all day with his books. But when you're the business person, and you have that once in a million chance meeting that you call chance, once in a million you met the right person at the right time and things just, everything connects and things just go wonderfully. You read every successful autobiography, there is... There's that moment, that chance, that moment where that's divine providence. You open your eyes, it gives you the goosebumps. You realize it hits home. When you see divine providence in your business, in your day-to-day life, in your real life and business, it really hits home. This is real. Hashem is with me now on Wall Street. Not just in the synagogue and Yom Kippur and Shabbos with the Torah. That really hits home. So the business person could be, feel more intimate with Hashem than anyone else. So what's your mission in life? You seek out godliness. You open your eyes to all the miracles around you, the ongoing miracles. And then we make this world into a friendly place. The world becomes a a home for God. You feel at home. We don't look at this world as evil, as dark, as horrible, as terrible. We look at this world as a garden of Eden. Potential. And we cultivate. We become the partners with God in creation. We cultivate this garden of Eden. And we plant the seeds and we water the seeds until the world actually becomes a garden. You reveal its potential and the world becomes a place where Hashem says, I feel at home. It's warm. It's not a jungle. It's not cold. It's warm. People care for each other. It's selfless. It's kind. It's good. It's a good place. People are godly. People are in touch with the... Every human being is in touch with their, the fact that they're created in the image of God. A non-Jew also has to connect with his godly spark, with the, the created image of God. And every Jew has to connect with their Jewishness and cherish their Jewishness and live their Jewishness and express their Jewishness in a vibrant, joyous, dynamic, powerful way. This is the world of Mashiach. And we bring this about. We make it happen. Through our Torah study, and through our mitzvah, every time we do a mitzvah, we refine the world, we reveal the world, we release the sparks, and we make, it's another brick in the building of the third base of Migdash. So Hashem should help in the honor and the schus of the, of the Alter Rebbe and the schus of everything that he started, the revolution that he started, and the Tanya, and which with every successive Rebbe is amplified and taken to a whole new dimension in the schus of all the outpourings of the fountains of the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, of Peter Shabal Shem Tov, the whole foundation of this part of Tanya that... Uh, as Mashiach promised the Baal Shem Tov, that when your teachings will spread throughout the whole world, now it's on the internet, Tanya is on the internet, lessons in Tanya, and 
can be heard all around the world 24-6. So this is a, a helping to spread the, found, the fountains of Hasidism. So the teachings of Hasidism, so Hashem should help that we should, uh, our next class should be given by the Alter Rebbe himself. And uh, you won't have to hear any of these. <laughs> You'll hear the real thing. L'chaim. <laughs>